everybody, welcome back to another Latinos in Clinical Research live webinar, bright and early on a Tuesday morning uh, here on the West Coast at 7 a.m. Uh, on the East Coast, it's 10 a.m. We just witnessed, if you're like me, you're watching the news, you saw Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin going to space. We've got some interesting things as well. I would say just as interesting things happening down here on Earth. We've got a special guest today, Rob Bohax. Rob is the founder and CSO, Clinical Solutions Officer of ClinOne, who works with world-class pharmaceutical companies to rethink and redevelop how clinical trials should be managed with patient centricity, all of our favorite word, uh, at its core. Rob believes that, and we're going to get into that, Rod. Uh, Rob believes that it's time to completely alter how we manage the interaction between research sites and patients, bringing trials directly to patients to simplify a very complex process through technology and automation. This is something the industry very much wants to see happen. We're going to talk about the challenges there, the reality of that happening. Rob has spent the last 10 years within clinical research including CEO of an oncology CRO. I definitely want to talk about that. And site management organization. I definitely want to talk about that as a fellow site owner that unified 320 oncology research centers across the US. Rob has received several accolades, including top 19 companies, the watch award in 2019, top clinical technology in 2019, the cover of CIO Applications Manage, uh, Magazine in 2018 and feature story of Pharma Tech Outlook Magazine in 2019. Rob holds a master's uh, in business administration from Grazidio School of Business Management Pepperdine. I didn't know that, Rob. That's awesome. Uh, so welcome, Rob, to the show. Thank you for joining us on LICR. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. So let's talk. Uh, there's a lot in your background. There are a lot of interesting stuff. Let's talk first. What was first, the uh, CEO of the CRO or the SMO? Uh, it was a. It was actually the same company. It was a combination approach to managing really a new generation of oncology trials and the challenges that poses to patients, site activation, and really being able to bring into a network effect these rural community oncology sites, which typically get overlooked in managing clinical trial opportunities. Okay, that's that's interesting. That I do I have seen that model before too, where the uh, site evolves into a CRO. Do you know a little bit the background of how that happened? Was it a site first? I get this question all the time from people who want to start CROs and I tell them that's a very difficult thing to do. Best of luck to you. I suggest you start a site first. So what, what was it there first? Was it the site and then a CRO? Yeah, the site network first, it really builds uh, a community practice alliance. So the challenges, as you're probably well aware, is that at least uh, sponsors will go to uh, sites with big feasibility numbers, right? I'm going to go to Stanford because they have you know, 200 potential candidates for me in this oncology indication. And if you're a small private oncology site in Bakersfield or other parts of California that are you know, not centralized, 
then the challenge, of course, is that you'll never get selected to be participate in that protocol, right? That's the reality. So we built a very large network across the U.S. so that these rural and community sites really empowered the patients to participate in trials by bringing their numbers together in a collaborative environment, right? And that's how we found a lot of patients who historically are underserved. We don't live in the major metropolitan areas. It's very difficult to get to some of these research sites as we're well aware. You can't always commute to UCLA or USC in, in Southern California as an example. So if you wanted to reach the patients that really mattered the most, which are gonna be patients uh, in, in diverse populations, then you have to bring the trials to them. And that's the model we built. Um, you had 300 oncology sites across the US. They had a rapid activation model so that we didn't have to open those sites until a patient was pre-identified when that happened. Then we'd in about 10 business days, get that site activated to be able to treat that patient. So logistically it was all driven by uh, technology so that we can get sites up and running very quickly, contract, right, CDAs, everything in budgets in place, everything's pre-negotiated. So it's a very effective way to bring trials to patients. And from there, we just move right into some, some of the CRO activities to support those studies as well. Beautiful. There you guys go. You get sick of hearing it from me. I tell you, you want to start a CRO, <laughs> go start a site. And they say, well, why, Dan, a CRO is better. I say, why is it better? They think it's more money. I say, yeah, top line more. Bottom line, not so much. And how are you going to compete? What Rob just described from his previous company, and I could see where the seed was planted for Clin One, based on the things that you said. Uh, it makes yeah. sense now, but we'll get into that. Uh, exactly how the seed was planted. Site first, guys, where the rubber meets the road. And by the way, this is still a very viable business. There's still a huge need for this especially community-based oncology clinics. So anybody watching, wanting to start a CRO, Rob, in about two minutes, just gave you a blueprint for how to do it. The, the work, the, the hustle is sold separately, but you have the roadmap in front of you. Uh, just like Blue Origin had a roadmap to get to space, you have one too. So uh, Rob, I see where the seed was planted there, running that SMO yeah. and CRO. Am I wrong in saying that that's where you saw the opportunity for Clin One? When when did that happen? When did the seeds start getting planted in your head for for Clin One? Yeah, it took a little while. So that kind of seed for Clin One happened around 2016 when I was uh, departing that organization and moving into Clin One itself, and realized there's just so much potential to use technology and automation to not just engage sites, but really move patients into the forefront of research. And of course, the challenge is we spend all of this cost on CRO services, lab services, uh, logistics for IP management, and then how much we spend on the patient directly themselves to be a part of a trial is very small. So really, uh, even when, when Clinton once started, you know, the, the solution was very different. And then when we started to very heavily invest into patient-centric solutions, where I think that the future really lies in being able to support the journey of the patients, which we'll talk about a little bit today as well. But it kind of happened after uh, really being able to influence and change behavior at sponsors. When I was with my previous company, um, you know, the, the industry was not adopting to new technologies or new methodologies. It was really difficult to get uh, uh, the industry to shift and evolve around this patient-first model for enrollment. Um, but we made lots of headway, which was great, but it was an incredible um, hard amount of work, right? It just wasn't happening by itself. So it took pilot programs, 
being able to be successful in, in, in engaging those patients and activating those sites rapidly, and then really move into uh, adoption across those larger sponsors and mid-sized sponsors as well. Today, the industry is very receptive and open to change, um, probably not change fast enough, as we all are aware, but enough where they're opening the doors, having conversations very willingly. Uh, back then, you know, a, a CDA wasn't even standardized, right, 10 years ago. It was, everything was custom developed. I need a CDA for this company, and it took two months to get a CDA in place. So different times back then. I'm excited to see how far the industry's come. We still have a very long ways to go, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's just the beginning. So what do, what do you think the future of clinical research is? Because I know ClinOne definitely specializes in bringing the trial straight to the patient. And I've, I've talked to other, yeah. this, this is tech month for Latinos in clinical research. So we've talked to many vendors, uh, tech vendors in the space. Not all of them we did a webinar with. We, we just talked to a bunch of them throughout the month. And I'm learning a lot. And, you know, they all understand that for their solution to work, you have to have the buy-in from the sites. Uh, what is your take on that and the future importance of this? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Right? Even to use the ClinOne technologies as well as other technologies in the industry, you have to have buy-in for the sites. So a lot of our technologies that we built have come from the sites up, right? Meaning that they're very involved with us in developing workflow, how it works, what problems does it specifically solve, what does it integrate with at the site level so that they can use it effectively. But there are still times when we are struggling as a company with a small number of sites adopting our technology still, right? We still have a ways to go. And uh, we're trying to get our hands around how do we solve that challenge ourselves as a company? Right? Do we offer a potential virtual care coordinator who's a central coordinator for the study that supports the patients remotely if the sites are, are too busy? I think a couple of challenges that we see from a site perspective is that a, a coordinator, a nurse, and a PI, they're pulled in dozens of directions, right? Meaning that they have to manage drug accountability, uh, IVR systems, any of the equipment that's shipped to the lab, being able to manage IP at the site level, all the monitoring visits, source documentations, everything's managed through them. And it seems like the patient component kind of falls almost last just because of necessity and the pressure is on them to maintain a high degree of compliance on all the other items they're facing within the given study. So the question becomes, you know, how do we help those sites out do a better job of engaging those patients? Or what else can we do to simplify their journey for us as well? The second challenge we face uh, in, in the studies is that that not all coordinators and nurses are created equal. There are some truly outstanding, amazing individuals who are coordinators and nurses and PIs and sub-Is supporting trials. And then there's ones that just simply aren't as talented or committed or trained to support the patient. So for a single study, you may have a coordinator that has very different experiences for their patients, which means there's inconsistency for the patient and their families as part of trials. And the third piece is what happens when if it's a, it's a long trial, right? Three years, five years, eight years. And we see a lot of turnover from coordinators at the site. And we just did some patient interviews in the last uh, couple of weeks where the patient and their family was on the seventh coordinator. And what does that mean for trying to understand what the expectations are when you're a part of a trial, right? As we know a, a protocol is between 50 and 
seen as high as maybe 200 patients, uh, pages, excuse me. Uh, they're complex recipes for success. For that patient, it looks very foreign. And I think in certain areas and regions and demographics, it looks even more foreign, right? Um, and there's a challenge because they have to follow that recipe as a patient. And as soon as you lose somebody to depend on and give you the guidance to be successful in that trial of what do I do today? What do I do tomorrow? Patients feel disconnected. They're non-compliant, not on purpose. They just don't know what to do. And then they just withdraw from the study right, prematurely at times. So there is a lot of challenges to fix around the inconsistency as well as the turnover with some of the studies and coordinators uh, around the world. Especially true in oncology. I know that firsthand as a oncology CRA, I've seen it myself, uh, you know, multiple coordinators, especially at the big academic medical centers. So I'm on, I'm on your website and we're, we're going to get into the demo really quick and the, yeah. the Q&A. Um, the first thing I see is recruit and enroll. Uh, so you have three pillars here. It looks like recruit and enroll, engage and interact, capture and monitor. So yeah. I know you kind of touched on these things, but MD referral to me is the one that stands out, maybe because it's first. Uh, but yeah. the, your proprietary opt-in network, 57, 570,000 specialists. My mind's not even trained to see that. Zero, 570, uh, and providers to generate referrals. How do you get 570,000 specialists to refer patients to sites they don't even know? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to answer that in a bit of a long-winded answer. So if I just cut me off if, if this seems too long. Um, so we launched our MD referral module about four years ago. It's one of our earlier modules as a company. And the solution came directly from the site. The site said to us very specifically, is there any way you can tell other sites around our site that are, we have trials that may benefit their patients, right? So if I'm, uh, I'm just going to use the Southern California example again, just to be consistent. If I'm at UCLA, Right? Can you tell other affiliated providers or nearby providers or oncologists that I have a trial happening uh, for my patients? Now, in some indications, referrals take place very commonly. In other indications, it's very competitive for the patients. And in the U.S., you know, our behavior toward referring patients is very different versus Canada or Australia or across Europe, where our technology actually is, uh, you know, a little bit more effective than it is in the U.S., for example. Wait, wait. So let's break and that thing, down real quick. Why? Why is yeah. it in the U.S.? Why do you think it's it's harder here to get collaboration amongst the physicians? Yeah, I think the you know sadly it's, it's the dollars in play, right? The uh, the value of an oncology patient in research is uh, somewhere between twenty to forty thousand dollars per patient enrolled in a trial. So it's difficult to get a patient move from UCLA to USC, which is a you know, direct competing academic center, for example. However, we also know that in the LA Basin, there are thousands of providers that are affiliated with UCLA that are willing to open, willing and open and able to get a patient referred over to UCLA for an oncology trial. So there's things that we've learned along the way. And uh, one of the biggest benefits in the US when you have a sufficient number of providers is being able to look at the intra-institutional connectivity. And that's where the majority of the value of our software really is in the US. It's how do we connect with providers who are affiliated with a certain site 
so that there's visibility. And I'll give you an example, and I use this example quite a bit in my discussions, but you know, right before the pandemic hit last year, I always spent a lot of time at sites, and I used to walk down the hallways of uh, Boston Children's Hospital, right? The number one research center in the world for pediatric clinical trials, and the way they communicate how clinical trials actually exist to their own providers inside the, their own building is that they print pieces of paper, they place them on a corkboard in a hallway, and hoping that another provider walks down the hallway, right, turns the left, and says, I've got a patient for that trial, and they literally tear off the phone number and email address from the bottom of that piece of paper, right? Old it's school. so antiquated. <laughs> it is so antiquated. And that's within a building, That's right? That's not even into the community or across campus or into some of their affiliated sites. And that's what this technology solves. It connects to providers inside that building, so they're aware, into the community, and then of course, deeply into some of the community and rural populations where they're not even aware of what's happening at Boston Children's Hospital or any of these facilities. It's a very proactive effort for outreach and managing that communication and then organizing that as well. So what I mean by that is uh, I'm gonna take my example that I'm an independent oncologist, which we know less than half in the US participate in research. I could sign up to be a part of this communication model and I could see what's happening at UCLA and USC and Providence Cancer Center, uh, for example, all in one email, and it breaks it down by therapeutic focus. So I could just navigate a menu of uh, what's available for my solid tumor patients, my hematology patients, and then break those out into subcategories of breast cancer, lung cancer, head and neck cancer, and then dive into what menu of studies are available. And it's kept you know, dynamically uh, up to date. So a lot of information that's on the web, whether it be clinicaltrials.gov or the institutional websites, they're out of date by three or four months. And we know that in oncology and rare disease, protocol amendments have dynamically changed trials consistently, right? A trial that opens today, is gonna to be a different trial potentially in 12 months as we're changing the screening criteria, maybe certain arms are closed or open, cohorts are open or closed, right? How do you keep up with this information? And uh, again, those are some of the challenges we solve with the outbound communication with that solution. Okay, I guess now is a good time to <clears throat> if you want, um, share the demo you have or um, slides. Yeah, I'm I'll do that. Of there course, we I'm go. I'm, go on, I'm on the website. Too. Our, uh, it's a good website, by the way. Here. Very good. Uh, very good website. When I got on there. Uh, oh, thank you. Page. Very easy. A, a great team at Clin One that manages uh, that for us. So let me just, speaking about MD referral. We'll, we'll maybe dive into that portion of our solution itself. Let me just uh, navigate away from some of these menus here. And by the way, anybody with questions, so, put in the chat. And then, Monica, feel free to interrupt at any time with a question. Uh, Monica Paula Quitiva or reading the anyone's chat. Yeah, feel free to ask any questions along the way here. Absolutely love to go through the technology. So speaking about MD referral, I've got a visualization tool built into our software that allows us to see what's happening with the communication. So. There's a dot in the middle of this. Bear with me as I zoom in in the background. It's a blue dot. Uh, this is your site in, in Boston that's open and recruiting for a given study. This happens to be a sample oncology study, so it's sticking with our theme of conversation today. And we've told our technology to find all the oncologists and hematologists who've signed up to be a part of our network around the Boston area. So these gray dots on the screen are actual users of our software. 
And these are the individual users that are going to receive the communication from Clin 1 right, twice per month. And those communications will include the list of trials that exist at the site in Boston. Of course, it gets to be very sophisticated in the back end where it can blend multiple trials or entire menu of trials, depending on the opportunity for, for the Boston region. But this is where the outreach is going to go for this given study with about 300 providers that have been identified in this digital radius. Uh, their gray circle is really the limited digital radius that we put onto this study. This is completely flexible which means that if we're looking for us to include some of the more rural populations to recruit from and engage providers deeply into the communities to bring awareness of that trial taking place in Boston, we can expand that radius. We can be uh, 200 miles away, right? For particular, if there's a travel reimbursement policy for the patients where they don't mind traveling such great distances, great distances for example, we're able to make sure that we're able to engage them, What's right? Historically... Study? Sorry, go ahead. Okay, have to mute. Please, please keep yourself muted. Thank you. Uh, okay, that yeah, that was not a question, Rob. Oh, no problem. Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So these dots, Great. okay, these are not, these are not, these are specialists. These are not the sites you are scraping from clinicaltrials.gov. Right. Correct. These are going to be individual users who are part of our research network. And for this study and for this indication, right, we've selected oncologists and intermedicine providers around this site. We do that most likely in a first line oncology setting where the patients are potentially transitioning from being uh, you know, pre-diagnosed moving into an oncology setting where if you're trying to capture their attention for a clinical trial opportunity in that, in that first line setting, we have to really communicate to uh, not only just the oncologist, but also the internal medicine providers who are providing kind of the early diagnosis uh, of an oncology uh, setting for a patient. Fundamentally, right, this is solving the challenge that no one's aware, right? No providers walking down the streets in Santa Monica or in Boston here, walking across that bridge at the Charles River with a lab coat that says, I'm managing this study from GSK or Lilly, right? If you need patients, right, tap me on my shoulder. It doesn't actually exist. I know we have some amazing technologies that are looking at taking very unstructured data from EHRs, doing some amazing data mining, correlation, NLP translations. I understand there's very sophisticated technologies there. We're taking a slightly different approach here and saying, how about we just make it visible, right? and that we're creating a, a visibility that the trial actually exists with your affiliated sites, sites in the community that are not competing for that same research patient so that everybody's aware that a study exists. The goal with this solution really in the next five years is that every single provider on the planet is signed up for this. And as soon as you have a clinical trial, we can let every provider know that may be seeing your patient to get them into the study potentially, right? That's a critical path for us. And we can alter the landscape of research and, and recruitment when we do that, uh, that you know, no one's approaching it this way. And there's a couple of things that we're adding into this technology, for example, and that is we're gonna take it beyond providers. Can we also communicate with patient support groups and registries, right? So no one's doing that effectively and systematically. And then also being able to communicate with some of the more uh, sophisticated next generation sequencing labs in the future as well. 
So for example, if we're looking for a rare biomarker patient, we know that uh, it's going to be very difficult for those patients to self-identify. Can we start to incorporate this communication and data integrations with some of the big central labs like a foundation or a Keras where, yeah, your, your, your specific mutations are going to be identified through labs and the clinical trial will be available to you on that report when it becomes available to that provider. I see. So, so you guys are with next like generation software. Foundation One and those lab vendors, they're also integrated in, into your products? Not yet, but they're on the roadmap to be there in the next uh, you know, six to 12 months. In okay. my previous life, I had a, a very large relationship with Foundation Medicine doing just this. Okay. Was the timing of that premature by about five or six years? Absolutely. <laughs> now that we're seeing a lot of investments into biomarker-driven trials, which is the future for oncology, right? we have to find a way to identify these patients uh, because uh, you know, that lab is going to be the one that says this patient is or is not eligible for a trial. So Rob, I know, and I know oncology is different. And then I know we had a question <clears throat> and we'll get to that question from uh, Monica. Monica will read it, but um, what I'm all about incentives for, you know, as a business person and we're, all we do is think about how to create the right incentives for yeah. individuals, different stakeholders. And I, I understand oncology is a little bit different in that there's more of a uh, I guess, concerted effort for the community to try to find the best solutions for patients, right? And you don't necessarily see that, or at least to that degree in other indications. So I think oncology was a good uh, indication to start with, although you guys are doing different indications I could see as well. Uh, but what's the incentive for like a clinician, first of all, to even use your product? I mean, we're talking about busy sites is it just for the altruistic, you know, component? Like, hey, uh, you know, I have a patient here, triple negative breast cancer, very aggressive, tough to treat. We have some research options that I otherwise wouldn't be aware of. Uh, like, what's the incentive for them? And then what would be the incentive for like a foundation or some of the labs? Yeah. A great question. Um, you know, I think in some therapeutic areas, uh, oncology, rare disease, right? Even NASH, for example, some forms of CNS and Alzheimer's, um, you know, we just haven't made a lot of progress in uh, providing standard of care options for patients that are viable, right? Meaning that they're uh, not overly aggressive in toxicity. They have a significant impact in uh, efficacy, for example. So if we apply some of those considerations, they're still major disease categories that we're just starting to move the needle on. So the motivation uh, from the providers is really getting a patient to a clinical trial that may um, provide them with some option because standard of care is limited or non-existent, right? Or it's a biomarker trial with great initial efficacy data or simply because of cost, because patients simply can't afford the current you know, standard of care that's eight, $9,000 a month per cycle. You know, patients, uh, struggle with that. So the motivation is going to be different for different patients in oncology and rare disease, right? Alzheimer's, they're just significant unmet medical needs. So without research and us being able to move the bar forward, uh, it's difficult to uh, you know, really improve the quality of lives for patients and their families. And, and that is the motivating factor. I think we as a company are always trying to think about how do we incentivize um, 
our providers to do a better job of uh, getting a patient in a clinical trial. We're always thinking for outside the box. You know, even even currently as a company, we're always putting our hands together about how do we overcome that hurdle and how we create a better system, right? Could there be a method so that uh, you know, a non-financial impact to that site or that provider for referring your patients possible? We know there's regulations around that by, uh, by region and by country, but uh, we're thinking about that as well. Right now, it's uh, finding options for patients that don't exist in highly competitive indications where there's lots of approved therapies, right? MDR is not going to be the right solution for you. There's just, you know, there's little value to get a patient in a clinical trial, especially if there isn't an affordability problem, for example. Uh, Monica, uh, I know there's a few questions yes. rolling through. <laughs> Hi, Rob. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This is um, an amazing technology. I really like it. <laughs> Okay, oh, thank you. So, so we have two questions, uh, actually three questions. Uh, this is from Steve. Uh, in light of COVID and the various variants, are you seeing a, a diminished number of ongoing trials that are not related to COVID? Yes, uh, really in the last uh, 14 months, we've seen a decrease in the number of trials that, uh, that we've seen initiated by sponsors, absolutely. In certain indications, right, I'm just going to use oncology again, where there's life-threatening mortal uh, demand in terms of uh, life expectancy or impact to life, there's just no choice but to provide the ability to uh, still continue to activate trials. Even in oncology, right, where patients have no choice, they have to start treatment, they can't ignore it, they can't wait a year, right, cancer is not going to wait for, for your COVID symptoms and risk to diminish. Those studies are still going to continue, even though we know that overall oncology enrollment is down significantly year over year as well. Sponsors still continuing to uh, initiate those trials, yes. But overall, there's been a significant decrease. So I, I'm, I'm hoping as the world normalizes in the next six or 12 months, we're going to see this resurgence of, uh, of new clinical trials. One thing that's really impactful that we've seen from COVID in terms of trials is it brought um, clinical trials to the average consumer, right? Healthy individuals that didn't have to worry about looking at clinical trial options for any kind of indications, all of a sudden were participating in COVID trials. And it was a very easy trial to participate in. Uh, we had hundreds of thousands of patients around the world who volunteered to be a part of COVID trials who never experienced clinical trials in the past. And it said, wow, I could be a part of a clinical trial. And the outcome was amazing, right? We saw very low uh, toxicity and safety concerns, and we saw a very high degree of efficacy. And now we have this amazing vaccine that are multiple vaccines that are available around the world. So I think uh, COVID, while it had a significant negative impact to the majority of clinical trials, what it did do is it provided visibility to the average consumer that I could be a part of a clinical trial, I can make a difference, and my experience wasn't that bad, right? So I'm really excited to take the the, the motivation and the momentum that we've seen with COVID trial participation and use that in other indications say, look, clinical trial is now for everybody. So we want to put a very um, positive perspective on what happened in the last 14, 15 months and uh, allow patients to now be a part of more clinical trials. Sorry, very long-winded answer. No, no, no. That's the, <laughs> that's the answer. And it's amazing. I, I, I agree with you. 
uh, uh, the COVID give us a lot of uh, uh, give a lot of awareness of the world in general about clinical trials, and uh, and and that's the positive out of this negative situation. Uh, yeah. for us. <laughs> okay. One so of the if, challenges we. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Rob. I was going to say one more item to add in there is that uh, you know the COVID uh, vaccines and really the FDA guidance and uh, sponsors' perspective was that we need to enroll a diverse population from patients around the world, right? And there was a very uh, significant effort to really bring clinical trials not just to the normal community around research sites, but how do we involve rural communities, underserved populations? Make sure we get supportive demographic coverage across the world in the U.S. to truly understand um, how these potential vaccines were impacting patients from different genomic makeups, right? Different uh, regionalities and uh, different uh, populations overall. I don't think some of the targets were met, but there was a significant push to make sure we're including all sorts of populations in the clinical trials. And uh, we know that some of these rural communication, uh, communities and populations are, are continue to be underserved and that we can't develop medicines based around a small genomic makeup of, uh, of patient populations. We have to really include the diverse populations from the U.S. and around the world so that we get accurate, consistent responses from a safety and toxicity profile, as well as efficacy across a broader demographic. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, okay, so we have another question. Is, is it much uh, more difficult to recruit during COVID? Absolutely. I think a lot of patients who, and, and I kind of point myself in, into these situations, a lot of patients who uh, were at risk because they have some medical condition, right? They really did not want to leave their homes to be a part of a clinical trial. Right, I'm already at risk. I already have cardiovascular disease. I have diabetes. I'm a, you know, I have some compromised immune system. I'm the one most at risk with COVID and going outside. Now you want me to be a part of a clinical trial at a big institution where cases were rampant early on, right? So that's where a lot of technologies really emerged to bring the clinical trial to the patient at home. So if you have cardiovascular disease, can I be a part of that clinical trial without leaving my home, for example? So a lot of the technologies we supported in our other modules, besides the one we're seeing on our screen here, was around, can we get the patient to become familiar with that trial from their home? Can they review the consent and go through the consenting process completely remotely? Can we allow them to be a part of that clinical trial without actually setting foot into a, a, a clinic or a hospital or institution where they're exposed and have to increase risk from leaving their homes? So a lot of these decentralized clinical trials, remote clinical trial participation came from the patients who were really sick. They were the most uh, at risk in terms of exposure to COVID and the impact and the uh, risk of developing you know, life impact from COVID. How do we bring clinical trials to them? Because they're still trying to manage their other diseases or indications in the background. They didn't have a choice. Yeah, and uh, Rob did, this uh, change a little bit when the vaccine came into place? Yes, um, earlier this year with the deployment of the vaccine, we saw more and more patients willing to go back to traditional site visits and be a part of research. However, 
really in the last three weeks, with the significant concern and rising around the Delta variant, is now we're going back into another mindset of, okay, even though I'm vaccinated, I'm really concerned about what I read in the news. And therefore, now I'm going back to where I was a year ago. So we're seeing this constant evolution and shift of a patient that didn't want to leave their home because they're at risk of developing COVID. Once they're vaccinated, they were able to go back and, and really consider what clinical trials are a part of. And now, again, with the rise of the Delta variant and some of the risk associated with that as well, now we're going back to the previous mindset. Uh, we're still a ways away from being back to normal. And I think it continues to have significant impact on clinical trial and, and recruitment overall, right? Rightfully so. Yeah. Okay, uh, the next question, oh, well, the, the next person, Remy, he says, uh, hello, Rob, I am, I'm, I'm excited to join the Zoom. What is the incentive for CRA looking for work? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just thinking that uh, CRAs right now are, are in really high demand, once again, which is important for us, but we may see the landscape change. Um, I think when, uh, before COVID happened, right, the CRA spent a lot of time on airplanes, visiting sites, doing on-site monitoring. And now with the, uh, the challenge with COVID and some of the changes of protocol at sites, uh, we're going to see that remote monitoring of source documentation is going to become a standard practice. So we may see, and I, I don't quite have the full answer for this here, we may see the evolution of a CRA role being a lot more remote and working a lot more remotely than spending a lot of time on site to provide the oversight and monitoring of that particular institution based on the continued risk and challenges for that role as well. CRAs are in very high demand from my understanding of uh, you know, the, the world around us. We have a huge gap in the number of CRAs we need to support trials today and certainly that the continued invigoration of trials in the near future. I'm just concerned that that role is going to change a little bit from where it was in the past. Instead of spending 70% of your time on a plane visiting sites, it may, may open the door for a lot more remote monitoring. We certainly are working on that capability as a company as well so that you can remotely monitor source documentation, information around consent, patient diaries, uh, anything that can be reviewed and monitored remotely, I think is going to be in big demand for the future. How about for the CRCs? Uh, great question. Uh, I, I, feel, I feel bad for CRCs. Um, I, I feel like we're going through a big technology uptake, and it requires the CRCs to adopt to using all sorts of technologies, right? How do I remotely consent to patients? I've moved some of my visits to telemedicine visits. Uh, I'm now looking at data from wearables from a patient that's wearing it inside their homes to understand how their vital signs are from home. So huge need for CRCs. We will always have big demand. I think the CRCs will have to wear a very big technology hat into the future to blend that into their workflow and managing these patients remotely. Okay, well, I mean, we all have to adapt <laughs> somehow, right? It's just that COVID <laughs> is pushing it uh, to do it faster. Okay, and then, uh, yeah, and then we have Rod Raphael. <laughs> um, hello, Rob. I might be, I might have missed uh, this, but in your is your company able to conduct advertisement advertising, and uh, at the site level. 
Uh, great question. We, uh, we currently don't have advertising at the site level. We're thinking about introducing a tool within our technology to help uh, recruit trial, uh, patients, I'm assuming, recruit uh, sites for new studies. We currently don't have that functionality. Um, today, our technology is built exclusively for creating awareness from a institution to a particular uh, provider around a, a site. So right now, we're really looking at provider-to-provider -provider communication within our technology. However, we are exploring the option to also connect with some of the patient support groups. So if we want to advertise a clinical trial to a patient support group through our technology, we can potentially do that as well. It's not something that we have today, but we're considering and evaluating that today at the company. Okay, I have, uh, this is a question for me. <laughs> How a company can do, uh, or, or do they need to have a specific characteristics to be part of your system? Um, great question. They, they don't. Um, all of our technologies are going to be developed for bring your own device. So that means that we're able to uh, allow the sites to use our technology on across a broad number of the platforms, right? So our technologies really intend to work across a large number of technologies. We typically, as a company, do focus on more sophisticated indications. So depending on uh, what kind of trials that you want to manage or who does help support that and provide the workflow and the technology to support that as well. And really, we want to simplify the uh, research opportunity for sites as well. We want to make sure that if a, a site is just moving into the ability to conduct trials, right, can our technology make it easier for the CRC or the nurse or the PI or for the sub-I. So a lot of our technology is also working on the automation of workflow for those site users as well. Uh, we realize that some of the trials that we manage are incredibly complicated, right? We've managed some incredibly difficult oncology trials and other rare indications where the protocols were these large basket studies and a regular site would really struggle with that. And uh, we want to make sure that we can simplify that journey for that site user as well so that we can enhance and motivate sites and encourage them to take on more challenging trials for their patients as well. I hope I answered your question okay. I may have missed the, yeah, the, the critical have. punch point here. <laughs> there is sometimes no, way, no, no easy way to explain it, but it's, it's really, it's really I, I mean, uh, uh, this technology is really amazing and obviously, uh, it will be nice to have it for all the therapeutic areas, right? <laughs> yeah, that is correct. Now, Rob, <clears throat> I know we're gonna we gotta finish the demo here. Maybe we'll do like a speed round finishing the demo. But I gotta ask: um, Is this a? How do you monetize? Is it the? I'm assuming it's the sponsors <clears throat> that would pay for this, right? Uh, is there any fee on the side of the uh, sites, the investigators, to use this? Um, great question. Yeah, the, the majority of our commercial model is toward the sponsors, and then it's it's free for use for the site. Occasionally, some of these major academic centers use portions of our technology as well. We've got a, a couple of very large, uh, it's more than a couple, but we've got a couple hundred very very large academic centers that use our e-consent, for example, just because we built one of the better ones in the marketplace. And they'll go ahead and purchase the technology directly from us to use you know, across all of their studies as an enterprise. And then we also have some portion of our technology that sites can download and use completely complimentary, right? We want them to continue to have access to their technologies 
that uh, don't cost anything. And that was one of the ways we founded the company is this really free solution for sites and then allow the sponsors to pay for a premium version when they want to provide that to their sites as a solution as well. We realized that uh, you know, we can't create technologies that are prohibitive for sites. We also know that there's limited budgets as well. And ultimately, uh, the value goes to the sponsor in terms of uh, the automation, the improved compliance, the ease of use, the patient retention, all those elements are uh, significantly benefiting not, the, not only the sites, particularly the patients, but primarily the sponsors. Okay, gotcha. And I know there's a little bit left of the demo you want to get into, so feel free to do that. Yeah, let me just change my screen here and get logged back in as, uh, as a patient. I, I won't go into each one of these modules specifically, but I wanted to illustrate some of the key elements that we're here to support a given patient, right? And uh, I'll just take five minutes and go through this. So as a part of our technology, we have uh, ClinTrial Connect, which is our patient-facing product. This is really here to make sure the patient understands what they have to do to be successful in a clinical trial. We all use something like Google Maps or Apple Maps to get to our destination, right? The reason why is this, there's a little voice in the background that says, hey, turn left on First Street, right? And then make a right on Franklin Street to get to your destination versus looking up in a map, right? We don't want to do that anymore. Clinical trials are unbelievably complex and certainly not getting easier. So we built a comprehensive platform that tells the patient what to do every single day to be successful in a clinical trial. And on top of that, it really starts with the fact that we engage not just a patient, but a caregiver, right? So uh, I, I have significant family issues with very significant, you know, mortal indications. My dad passed away with ALS about two years ago. My mom was recently diagnosed with breast cancer, right? And is going through some of the activities remotely. I'm equally trying to understand, you know, what's the best way to navigate and what they have to do. So we've created this solution, not just based on my family's needs, but everybody who's struggling with this, so that a family, the caregivers who are involved and support the patient journey, understands what needs to happen with that patient uh, to be successful. Number two is getting to a master calendar. All of us use some form of a calendar every single day so that we don't miss appointments and calls, right? Where do we go for the Zoom meeting today, for example? All those are critical details. So our technology really starts with the premise of a master calendar. I, as a patient, know what I have to do every single day for the next 18 months that I'm on this trial, right? That's really important because we just don't have the bandwidth of a CRC calling every patient three times a day. Hey, Jane, it's time to take your medication. Hey, Jane, did you take your medication today? Hey, Jane, did you, did you have an appointment tomorrow at 11 a.m., for example? So our technology does all these activities. One of the key elements that we built into our calendar event is our integration with Uber. So if a patient needs transportation to get to their visits, which a lot of patients do today, right, our technology will pick them up with the help of Uber in the background. That's actually Uber Health, which is a subsidiary of, of Uber itself so that we protect PHI. These are really important pieces of our software. To simplify that journey to get a patient to and from a visit, not have to worry about transportation, not have to worry about acclimate weather. Uh, you know, it breaks my heart to hear these scenarios where patients took like four buses just to get to their visit and have to leave at five o'clock in the morning, right? There's a better way to do that and treat our patients who are part of clinical trials better. And our integration with a calendar map uh, does that, of course. Right, being able to manage the consent process again, thinking about the family centricity, so that we can remotely consent and reconsent patients, absolutely critical, so they don't have to 
come in for an unexpected visit when we're just completing a revised version of an ICF, for example. Something like dosing compliance. Our system works through an interactive text so that patients know when to take their medication and then they respond back that I've taken my medication or I've skipped my medication, right? These are small things, so it, but it's kept very organized at the patient level. And of course, the patients can also look back in time and say, did I take my medication this morning, for example? So it's all built into this framework of managing the task for the patients. Of course, having a, a solution that can bridge the gap between the site and the patient on a telemedicine visits, all a research compliant solution, right? Absolutely critical. Being able to answer some of the surveys, the diaries, and the questionnaires that are part of clinical trials today is really important. We don't have to worry about a paper-based diary any longer, the paper-based questionnaires. Those are very antiquated. This is all done electronically and simplified. And then really importantly as a part of this framework is that this platform that patients use is available in 55 different languages, right? We cannot continue to underserve certain populations, right? And clinical trials in the U.S. are not English. They're not English and Spanish, right? They typically come to forms of about a dozen languages that we use systematically across the U.S and about 40 other languages we use across the world. We have to think about how do we make this easier for patients to participate versus being prohibitive because, you know, English is not my primary language, right? Uh, I was born in another country, English is my fourth language. Still struggling with English, to be honest with you, but uh, how do we present clinical trials so that patients from all diversities and backgrounds and languages can participate and not be a barrier is absolutely critical. I think these are you know, small things, but they're absolutely critical to these patients. Uh, if you want to have uh, this solution run in Italian for a trial in, uh, in, in LA, you can absolutely do that. This level of flexibility, automation, ease of use, and then of course the accessibility by regional language requirements is absolutely critical. And I can't emphasize enough that if we're gonna bring clinical trials to the masses, you have to do so on the patient's terms that includes language, that includes regionality, and of course, really ease of use for those patients and the caregivers as well. Okay, Rob, thank you. So are there any of, this is, uh, I'm assuming this tools here for the sites, uh, these would not be free, right? These, uh, this would be a paid product for the sites. That is correct, but the majority of the times, these are investments the sponsors are making or the sites are pushing for reimbursement um, for, for this solution as well. So uh, many times these technologies will be covered in the budgets that are negotiated with the sponsor as they're part of their pass-through budgets, at least that's their experience. Gotcha, and then one final question, and then we can wrap it up. And I don't know if you may have answered this already, I mean, let me read it. Uh, by the way, former CRA Academy student asking this question. Shout out to Iman. Uh, and also, she's a guest lecturer <laughs> of the CRA and CRC Academy. Uh, had to get that plug in there. Are there any solutions on the horizons or that you can see to the problem with the lack of intraoperability and standardization between different platforms? Uh, that's basically the gist of her question. Yeah, great question. Uh, the, the answer is yes. So at ClinOne, we've built our company and platform on a large API network. So this data works really well together. So we as a company are seeing some trends that uh, data between 
your CTMS, your e-regulatory solution, your clinical one solution is integrated together. We know that it's early on. We know that other major industries, right, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Microsoft, have really figured out that systems have to talk to each other to be effective as a user product for a consumer and for a user as well. We are equally working and making investments there, but the industry is really far behind. I sit on the American Telemedicine uh, Decentralized Clinical Trial uh, Board, and uh, your data uh, interoperability is a key element that we discuss every single month. How do we bridge that gap today? Because these systems cannot be so siloed and independent from one another. I got you. And by the way, Rob, <clears throat> and by the way, thank you. We've, you gave us an hour. We used the entire hour. I appreciate <laughs> you, your patients, and everyone else on here. Your English is great. I would have never known. Where were you born? I have to know. I, yeah, I was, I was born in Hungary, and then my family and, and ah. I escaped when I was eight years old and uh, lived in a refugee camp in Austria. We were political refugees before we gained wow. asylum to the U.S. So that was back in the uh, days when the Soviet occupation had uh, taken over Hungary. So it was back in the early 80s. Gotcha. We're neighboring. I was born in Romania. We moved to the U.S. when I was uh, three so I've actually been to Hungary oh, wow. a few times. Okay. Would have never guessed, Robert. Yeah, you yeah can't never. <laughs> <laughs> no. So uh, what a, we will put uh, links to, what should we put links to underneath? We have a link to, should we just go to the website? Uh, underneath the website would be the best channel? link, absolutely. Okay, clin1.com. And thank you everybody for attending. And thank you, Rob, very much uh, for a great presentation. And we appreciate everybody who came on. And if you're watching the replay, make sure you connect with Rob uh, on clinone.com. Well, thank you so much, everybody. No, okay. Thank you so much, Rob, for such an interesting presentation. Definitely very interesting presentation. I really love this, uh, the, your product. Oh, thank you. I'm grateful for the time today. And uh, thank you for putting together this great audience. And your contribution and webinars to research are, are significant. So, so please don't stop. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for the yeah. support, everybody. And we'll catch you all later at the next tech series next week on Tuesday. Take care.